0: Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Raymond, welcome to the War Room.
1: Hi, Ryan. Good to be with you.
0: Okay, so you have a provocative title caught my attention, and it's a topic that feels like doesn't get a lot of in-depth coverage, um, but it's talked about from time to time. And, of course, the book, as I mentioned in the introduction, is Defenders of the West, The Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. Controversial title. What made you publish the book?
1: Um, Several reasons, including what you mentioned in that it's not really, um, it's not really uh, brought forth except kind of haphazardly, which leaves certain gaps and questions in people's minds. Um, It's in many ways also a follow-up, a secondary book to my previous book before this, which came out in 2008. And that book is called Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and West, where I basically... Uh, looked at the totality of uh, Islamic-Western interactions, military interactions, in the context of eight of the most decisive battles. And the first one is uh, in the year 636, just a few years after the Prophet Muhammad dies. And the last one is, uh, the last major one at any rate, the Siege of Vienna is in 1683, so well over a thousand years, but we also uh, look at other battles like uh, the United States of America's first war as a nation, which was against Muslims, the Barbary Wars. Um, so that, the, that book was pretty successful and um, there was sort of a demand for a follow-up. And so what I did with this book is it's it's sort of the same approach, Defenders of the West, but instead of looking at eight battles, I looked at what I call, instead of eight, eight decisive battles, I looked at eight decisive men warriors, warlords, kings, heroes, however you want to define them, who, of course, are Christian uh, because anything from Europe or what we call today the West uh, up until, you know, very recently was defined as Christian. And um, also in the book, you'll see that these characters, as well as in other books, Sword and Scimitar, saw their war against Islam as in the name of defending Christendom, Christianity and so forth, just like the Muslims saw it as in the name of their religion and um, waging jihad. So um, yeah, I just wanted to sort of bring back that forgotten history, just like I brought it with the other book, showing the, just the general military history and battles. This one, I wanted to bring uh, out some of, some of these men who actually were considered great heroes and were well-known for centuries by their posterities. And then now, and we can talk about that later, but now they're, at, if, if, not, if not completely unknown, or um, they are now demonized, basically. So it was, it was sort of also a corrective in that sense.
0: Okay, and so you you said there that both sides of these wars thought they were right. How do you go about determining which side is right and which side is wrong?
1: Well, approaching it um, from a historical point of view. Uh, so looking at this most recent book again, uh, the, the two books are very much you know complementary. So they deal with battles and warfare between. Islam and Christendom and uh, the you know the long and short of it is in virtually every single one of these uh, battles and wars Muslims were the ones who initiated it and in the context of what's called just war theory which was a uh, you can uh, you can say it's a Christian innovation but also continues today in western thinking basically uh, if you're attacked you have the right to fight back and also you have the right to reclaim um, conquered territories that were once yours. So if you look at the entire history of Islam vis-a-vis the West from 7th century, when the first war that I mentioned 636 on the riverbanks of Darbuk in Syria up until the Barbary Wars and after, what you had is uh, Muslims invading and conquering Christian territory. And so uh, what we today call the Arab world or the Muslim world, the heart of it, the main part of it, which is the Middle East, or as it's known among academics, MENA, Middle East and North Africa. So, from Morocco in the West all the way to Egypt in Africa, and then Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Israel, giving them their modern names, and as well as Turkey, all of these were actually the heart of the Christian world when Islam came into being. They were more Christian, really, than any part of Europe was. And um, through these jihads, as as the Muslims themselves articulated it, all of those lands were conquered and slowly Islamized so that today most people just call them Muslim nations, which, of course, is what they are. Um, But even the Christians in Europe who are also attacked, so, you know, in, in the year 711, Islam invaded Spain, for instance, and uh, the Mediterranean all was awash with attacks in the eighth and ninth centuries. And then uh, all those battles. And then, of course, the Ottoman Turks took over the Balkans, and that's when they reached to Vienna. And even, uh, you know, these are some of the more famous attacks and, and conquests. But, and I discuss this in the book, you know, it went as far as going to Iceland and, you know, slave raiding and so forth, and always being articulated as, you know, the jihadist imperative for Muslims to follow. So um, to your question, you know, who's right, who's wrong, in all of these battles, in both books, every, the Christians were defending or trying to liberate. And this even goes for the Crusades. Uh, the Crusades are, are the most famous, probably, of these battles, even though they're in many ways the least important from a historical, macro-historical perspective, are usually seen as aggressive warfare, Christians marching into the Islamic world. But as I pointed out, that really was Christian territory and the Crusaders knew that. And even at the time, more conquests were happening in Asia Minor where the Turks were completely ransacking it. And according to the sources, killing, slaughtering, enslaving hundreds of thousands of Christians. So it was, even that was seen um, as a part of just war uh, theory.
0: Yeah. So I'm familiar with just war theory, but for those who aren't, maybe unpack a little bit more about how that would, what that is and how that would work itself out in these scenarios.
1: So just war theory really, if you trace it back historically, the name that's mostly associated with it is uh, Augustine, St. Augustine. And um, he basically, he and other, you know, church fathers, theologians had to reconcile the, you know, apparent pacifism of the New Testament teachings with the idea of, you know, saving yourself, protecting yourself from uh, unjust attacks and violence. And so they came up with what we call today just war theory, and they based it on uh, you know several biblical, including New Testament passages. So, for example, um, you know when 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 the centurion comes to Jesus, the Roman centurion, and he asks him to heal his servant, um, you know we know that when Jesus is approached by someone who wants some sort of uh, healing, that in the end Jesus tells them to repent uh, of their sins. In this case, uh, you know, Jesus obliges and heals his servant, and he doesn't tell the Roman centurion repent and leave the army because you're killing people. Even though this man was probably in charge or responsible for the, you know, the countless slaughter of lots of people because he was a centurion. Um, so, you, and also with John the Baptist, you know, soldiers came to him and said, "What must we do?" And he told them things like, basically, be content with your wages that they were getting from the army. He didn't tell them to quit the army. Uh, so you have a lot of, you know, and of course, you know, the Old Testament is full of, uh, you know, justification for this idea. So it quickly became apparent to Christians, especially in the context of being invaded and attacked by Muslims, as well as northern pagans and so forth, Vikings and whatnot, that, uh, you know, you, pacifism won't do. St. Paul also uh, talks about praying for the authorities so that they can make it so that you you Christians live in a safe and equitable sort of environment so that you may lead a peaceful life so all of that together and there's much more to it i'm just trying to give you a succinct version all of that together coalesce into what we call just war theory which as i said just if you're a christian it's not a sin or anything like that to fight back even kill as long as you're doing it in the idea of defending yourself or or innocent peoples or even trying to liberate and reclaim conquered regions.
0: Okay, and so that's the Christian perspective, and the opposite perspective of the jihad would say what?
1: Yeah, so the jihad, and this is a good point, because a lot of academics, unfortunately, uh, whether out of ignorance or intentionally, they try to conflate jihad with just war theory, and they try to say, well, jihad is just like just war theory, it's the Islamic Persian. Well, that's completely false, because jihad, the, the, the fundamental aspect of jihad, while it has a defensive component, this is actually seen as the more minor secondary component that you just do when you need to. But the main idea of jihad is, is conquest in the name of Islam. Okay, so Muslims are required according to Islamic teaching as found in the Quran and in the Hadith, which is the recorded words and sayings and deeds of Muhammad, uh, which, you know, which are very important for Muslims. They, they make up the Sunnah, which is what 90% of all Muslims are, are. Sunnis. They follow the example. Um, All of these make very clear that Muslims are, they are obligated, it's actually an obligation, the jihad on Muslims, it's a communal obligation, as opposed to an individual obligation, such as prayer, fasting, um, uh, you know, the pilgrimage and so forth. Um, And this obligation is such that you have to enter when you can, when it's possible, you have to invade non Muslim territories, give them three choices, either convert to Islam. Um, or pay jizya, pay tribute and live as basically second class citizens, which is in very humiliating terms that are actually spelled out when you get into that. And it's all based on Quran 929. Or if you reject those two offers and you fight to the death. And that's basically what usually happens, uh, especially in the case of Europe. Uh, so, that's, so, the, so the jihad imperative is, is conquest, whereas uh, just war theory is purely defensive.
0: Okay, and so it would seem then to weigh in on these these uh, which side of that those are different worldviews that the the outside perspective to to give an opinion on who's right and wrong, you have to start taking stances on just war theory, on uh, conquest and, and, and which is right and which is wrong. And I think that's part of the problem when we go back to history is um, modern commentators aren't really sure where they land on these issues and how that actually makes history either appealing or unappealing to you (laughs) if you start taking strong stance on on different sides of these issues
1: right and um well and i think what's going on though is uh history is intentionally being distorted or suppressed or ignored to help a specific narrative so for example earlier i was talking about the crusades and if you talk to any even you know not not less than reasonably educated Western person, and you mentioned the Crusades. that are at least somewhat vaguely familiar with them, and they'll know it, it consists of Christian European knights invading Muslim territory, engaging in atrocities and so forth. Um, and the reason for that, uh, as, as I said, if you look at the long continuum of Islamic warfare with the West, which begins in the six hundreds, and you know, depending on when you want to end it, it could go on till today. But the major battles, uh, let's say, let's say until 1800. Okay, so we're talking about 12 centuries. Uh, the Crusades really were a little under two centuries. Okay, but why are they so famous? It's precisely because uh, of the simplistic view, ostensibly, it seems like here we finally have an example of Christians who are attacking Muslims, and so it becomes highlighted and underscored, and everyone's taught about it. Because it it, it 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 seems to agree with the narrative, which is Western Europeans Christians are bigots trying to attack, uh, you know, whatever people of color, anything. Um, but if you look at the totality of it, as I mentioned, is much longer, much more violent, much more vicious, and all done in the name of Islamic jihadist conquests, where the Christians are very clearly on the defensive, and most people have zero knowledge of that. And again, I I think this is intentional um and and this is also why it's important to go back to your first question to bring up this history and and set up a corrective so people have a more correct context to understand current events
0: and and so um you mentioned there's there's times where uh, um the muslims have come they've taken and then there's times where the christians go back and they take so how do you balance those those the reclaiming of land so one of the things i've thought about before is uh whether it's this issue or another land issue is once a nation has been overrun at what point does the new regime actually have claim to 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 be the rightful leaders and so you know if if um a foreign army invaded the u.s today it took over we'd all by and large i think be like no sorry if they were installed 50 or 100 years and they were the leaders at that point do they have a claim so is there a point in history when we're evaluating these things we say okay this was a bad act this is wrong but at some point they the the government that's installed does become the the legitimate government
1: yeah i mean that's a fair question And, and and but i mean who's to say right so i mean i don't know has the international community agreed to whatever let's say it's a century if you've been conquered now you need to get over it you need to move on you know, would they ever say that to the Palestinians, for example, with what's happening with Israel and Palestine, um, which is nearing about 100 years now? Obviously, a lot of people would say no, and you know, no, the Palestinians have rights, they shouldn't just be subjugated, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the question is an open question, but it's important to point out here in the context of our discussion, is that the only time that, um, you know, that this question is relevant, again, goes back to the Crusades. So, in the seventh century, the Middle East and Jerusalem and all that was conquered, correct? And the Crusades come almost four centuries later. But the uh, I was just giving you the long sort of background story, but the actual imperative at the time and what the Crusaders were thinking was right before the preceding years, the decades and the immediate years, right before the, uh, the first Crusade was called in the year 1095, there was an extremely um, uh, vicious sort of jihadist uprising against the Christians of the East, especially the Armenians at the hands of the Seljuk Turks. That's when I was referencing about tens and hundreds of thousands, literally according to the sources being butchered and, and murdered and that's, and then the Eastern Roman empire, which was right there as well in Constantinople was also under attack. So, and, and the pilgrim, pilgrims from Europe who would go to the Holy Land for pilgrimage, which they were accustomed to doing for centuries, under earlier Islamic rulers. And, and then it wasn't that great either. They you know, they were treated sometimes harshly, sometimes they were killed, but for over the course of four centuries, you know, it continued that stream of pilgrimage. But again, right before the first crusades along with the other issues, there was an attack and, and ruthless, atrocious behavior towards pilgrims, you know, raping nuns and, you know, destroying caravans and everything you can imagine. So that was the immediate context, um, and that's why Pope Urban II and all of the preachers of the First Crusade presented it as, you know, you, the crusaders, are taking the cross and going on pilgrimage and sacrificing your lives for your brothers, for your fellow man. Um, So it was actually seen as an altruistic, charitable thing to help liberate the Christians of the East, who at that particular point in time were being attacked so the question that you pose about you know, when, 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 when you know, should people just, you know, it's over, uh, it's, it's been a century and now it's, or in this case, it's been four centuries, it's over. Yeah, that could be relevant. But in, in the case of the only example where we can even bring this up and, uh, on our topic is the crusades. And even then, that wasn't the primary issue that it was Christian land, but it was rather what was happening to Christians who were living in that territory at the time.
0: Okay. So you mentioned that the new book is about um, particular figures. Who are some of these figures and what made them unique?
1: Yeah, so there's, I I ended up with eight. I mean, there's a lot. I could have gone on and on, but um, I ended up with eight. And uh, they are in order, chronological order uh, and chapter order. There's eight chapters. So the first would be Godfrey of Bouillon. um, And I'll just give you a quick encapsulation of each. So he was one of the first crusaders. And, um, you know, he's, he's a very interesting character. And I don't want to give too much. I don't want to you know, offer spoilers for whoever ends up reading the book. But, you know, he played a very pivotal role um, in the First Crusade. He was a noble, a duke. He was actually um, uh, a, a descendant of Charlemagne. And before him, Charles the Hammer, Charles Martel, who also fought Muslims in the year 732 when Muslims invaded France at Poitiers or Tours. Um, So he was, uh, you know, a very central and important figure and was seen as, you know, the, you know, his name was sort of code for chivalry. The whole idea of chivalry was actually tied up with him, Godfrey. And then the second chapter is El Cid, who's very, probably one of the more famous of these characters. Uh, His his real name is Rodrigo or Roderick Uh, um, uh, Diaz from Vivar or de Vivar in Spain. Um, And, you know, a lot of people who've heard of this, maybe have watched the Charlton Heston movie from the 60s, which does a fair job, but it really doesn't look at his, his, you know, very important battles against the various Islamic invasions um, during his era, which was actually contemporary with the First Crusade. So he and Godfrey lived around the same time. Um, And then the third one is King Richard, again, a more popular of the figures, Lionheart. And um, I really look, I, I, I zoom in on his battles against Saladin in the Holy Land, which are very, uh, all of these battles, by the way, in these lives. And then one of the reasons I wrote is there when you, and, and I really focus on the primary sources. So none of this is really out of my mind. And I think there's 1200 endnotes to actual quotations and so forth, but they're very interesting, very inspiring, very amazing. And any one of these chapters you know, could easily be a movie and they wouldn't even, you know, the the producers and directors wouldn't have to exaggerate because just their actual lives, you know, the idea where you know, fact is stranger than fiction is very evident in the lives of these various men. Uh, so after Richard in chapter four, we have um, Ferdinand III of Castile, also known as Saint Fernando, and uh, another important Spanish figure who was involved in the Reconquista, which is basically the, the Christians of Spain trying to reclaim and liberate. Spain from the Islamic conquests uh from earlier and he of course uh it's interesting to see a man who became a saint primarily because he was actually waging war so this again uh, sort of underscores the idea of just war theory and then the next chapter is actually his cousin first cousin which is king louis um who also became saint louis and and he, his life is he is he's a crusader king of france and he went i think he's, he's louis the Ninth. He also went to the Holy Land, um, engaged in the crusade. And in many ways, he's, I call him the, tra- you know, the most tragic figure of the whole book. Um, his, his conquests or his achievements were rather negligible. But in many ways, he's probably the most impressive of all the men just because of uh, his commitment and self-sacrifice um, you know, to the cause. And then the next three chapters, five, six, and se- uh, um, uh, the next three chapters, six, seven, and eight. Uh, now we've, we we kind of move, we left Spain and we left the Holy Land. Now we're in the Balkans and looking at the Ottoman jihad into Eastern Europe. And um, the three heroes there are John Hunyadi, who, um, you know, he's claimed by Hungary, a Hungarian hero uh, who fought back the Ottomans and, and very remarkable stories of courage. Again, he was engaged in uh, I just published an article this week uh, called The Long Campaign, because at this time, um, I don't know, 16 or, or, how, or how many years ago, how many centuries ago, uh, in 1442, I believe, in the end of September, he went on very remarkable campaign against the Turks, and he started it in winter, late, or late September and all the way into December. Um, so a very, another pivotal character. And then after him is Skanderbeg, whose real name is George Castriotti. And he was an Albanian, basically, uh, prince who was kidnapped by the Muslims, raised as a jihadist. When he was nine years old, he was taken, um, converted to Islam. And then when he had a chance and he rose up the ranks, very amazing, you know, came top. I think he had 5,000 men under his uh, force, uh, under his command, and he was well praised and liked by the Ottomans. But once he had a chance, he broke free, ran back to Albania, reclaimed his Christian heritage. And at that point, of course, the Ottomans just flooded Albania with one war after another. And he just remarkably held out for a quarter of a century. Uh, he's, he's arguably the most famous. Um, or when you talk about heroes of Christendom against Islam, he's arguably probably the most famous or important and was seen that way for centuries. And then the last one, probably the most controversial, is none other than Dracula, <laughs> Count Dracula, Vlad Tepes Third of Romania or Wallachia at the time. And, you know, he's, an, he's he's our, of course, his name is the most famous of all of these men. But again, as I was saying earlier, a lot of these characters have been demonized in a, and literally so he has by being portrayed as this evil bloodsucker when really his claim to fame was his wars of defensive wars against the Ottomans where he really used, you know, he fought fire with fire. So the idea of impalement, which he engaged in, And he, you know, he definitely did his share of those and they were pretty horrific, but he actually learned them. he too was a hostage of the Muslims in his youth, in his youth. And um, they're the ones actually, uh, you know, Muhammad II, the Sultan was the one who really specialized in impaling his victims. So um, Vlad actually fought back with impalement to terrify the Ottomans and it worked actually in several cases. Uh, so that's so he's brought in too, you know. Uh, so all in all, you know these heroes. Some are some are seen as you know, wonderful, some are seen as evil. But it, the you know the undertone, undercurrent of all of them again is you see that all of them identified themselves as Christians. All of them saw the attacks from Islam as an existential threat, and um, all of them fought back and resisted very violently. Um, again, in the name of their of their faith, which will strike modern day Christians, of course, as strange, and that's has to do with this sort of uh, forgetfulness of just war theory. I think.
0: Okay, so you said Dracula. Did I hear that right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> Dracula. I mean, yeah, Count Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's what we know, right? Because right. The, uh, the Count Dracula was written by uh, Bram Stoker, Stoker. What and Late 1800s, and um, all he did, and I discussed this in the book a little bit, but he just found a figure uh, in Europe who was engaged in violence. He he actually relied on these. Today, we know they're very propagandistic tracts from Vlad's enemies um, who made him look into this wild bloodsucker monster, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And today, most historians will tell you a lot of that is, is not true, it's exaggerated, but he relied on that. And then he created, uh, you know, the fictitious story of an undead vampire, which even the propagandistic tracks did not, of course, say they acknowledged he was a human Um, and he fused all that. So that's what we know of the fellow. But if you look at his actual history, especially vis-a-vis the Ottoman uh, invasions, you know, then you see a sort of different character. He was actually fond of monasteries and funded them. And, uh, you know, he laid the groundwork for the Orthodox Church of Romania. And you know, so so I'm again trying to bring out the the other side that people are not aware of.
0: Were these men unique amongst their time, or was this more of the average Christian man that you would have seen?
1: No, I can you. I think we could say they were average in their outlook. So everyone would have agreed with what they were doing, fighting back, even traveling to the holy land like the crusaders did i think that would have been very mainstream among people but they might be unique in the fact that they were just very stalwart and courageous and uh you know just i mean most of these men a lot of them were either kings or great lords and nobles and they had a lot to live for and um you know they just sacrificed so much and most of them died in their 40s and 50s just uh in, in the name of what they saw as a righteous cause
0: going to these wars, obviously losing lives, um, seeing horrible things. Did, did they have a sense of vindication, regret, despair? What was their, their feeling as their lives came to an end?
1: Well, um, you know, sometimes we don't have the exact records, but one of the most interesting is we have uh, Louis, St. Louis, who I told you was really an abysmal failure, and he, he even died um in one of his crusades just of, of plague as he died uh, we do have records because his court insiders are around him and uh, there's nothing of the sort uh that he felt like what he did was wrong even though many did think it was weight you know wasteful his crusades ultimately failed and he actually called on his men to continue trying to uh he actually is one of the people so we're talking about that he dies i think in 1270 and uh, I was telling you how in Carthage basically or North Africa, in Tunisia today, that's where he dies. And um, he, well, his his dying words are basically try to bring back the Christian faith to this region because we know this, you know, the Christian faith was planted here. Uh, when, uh, I guess, you know, uh, Islam conquered in that area about 670. So we're talking about, you know, five, 600 years before. So he was uh, cognizant of that, but it was also to him a matter of saving souls. He actually a lot of these people, these crusaders, didn't just fight, thinking that they're liberating they, you know, their lands or protecting Christians. They actually did it. Um, there was a strong missionary component often, and they would try to missionize to the Muslims because they were concerned about their souls. And Louis one of those who who really um, you know engaged in that. But when he died, uh, all he did was it was a very religious uh, ritualistic kind of death he laid himself in, in penitent ashes and prayed and uh, no sign of regret whatsoever um, like i said the others there aren't many records but i would imagine they had the same sort of mentality and world view
0: is there a way for us to learn how to avoid these type of conflicts today
1: well uh you know again uh, the only way to avoid these conflicts, th- these conflicts were all done, again, according to just war theory. So if someone's attacking you, the only way if you want to if you want to avoid it is you I guess you just take it um, appeasement. So uh, in, 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 we can say we can say our hope that, well, we can stop war by not being aggressive, not, you know, uh, in not threatening other nations, taking advantage of them, not exploiting them. So I would agree with that. But none of this is applicable to this long narrative that I'm uh, sharing with you, because in this case, and as I discussed in in Defenders of the West in the introduction, you know, that's why I spent a lot of time discussing just war theory and how all of these battles were in that case. So it was either fight back and protect yourself or others, uh, as in the Eastern Christians, or you just uh, take it because, in fact, there's a great quote from Augustine, who I mentioned to you um, as being the, the main, the main uh, character who, uh, who articulated the just war theory. And if we have a second, I can pull it up to you. But it, it sort of reminds me of what you're, you know, like, what, how can we avoid this? And uh, he basically said, here it is, here's a quote. It is the injustice of the opposing side that lays on the wise man the duty to wage war. So if someone's going to, it's the injustice of the other side, if they're being unjust, you either have to fight. Okay. Or you just take it. So in the context of the the narrative that we're discussing, the only way not to have engaged in that war was to just have um, been passive and just taken the attacks and injustices from the opposing side.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm with you. So I just think about, um, the conflicts going on today, whether it's. Um, US foreign policy or Russia Ukraine or you know and you go oh, well, yeah how do you, how do you peel back and advise a culture if you are participating in a just war because that would be part of the way we'd have to deduce what we're doing today.
1: Right, right, right. yeah. what's happening today is you a know, world's apart from what we were what I was <clears throat> discussing right. um, not, not least because <clears throat> we the people generally don't even have a clue. What is the real cause behind this or that war? Or you know, we're continuously being lied to. Things are being misrepresented um, as far as what's going on. So, I would argue if if we can clearly define something along the terms of just war, whereby we or ours is under attack, um, then yeah, we should do something about it. And you know, today in the world, the landscape is so different from before, where. I mean, just, just US, the U.S. can just engage in policies without even waging war, and that has a massive effect. Um, just one example in the Islamic world, for example, because I was involved with in this, there's a lot of persecution of Christian minorities that goes on. And something as simple as U.S. withholding aid you know, from, let's say, Egypt or whatever, any of these major nations, goes a very long way. And in this case, it's not like the United States is waging war. So there's, uh, you know, the landscape is so vastly different uh, and it requires, uh, you know, accurate knowledge of what's going on. And I don't think we have that. I think a lot of that is being manipulated and misrepresented in the media and so forth and by politicians. Um, And until such time that we can actually ascertain the truth, it's very difficult to say where and when and how the United States or any Western nation should be involved in some conflict.
0: Okay, last question for you. Someone listening to this goes, you know, Okay, I've heard you, um, but I've this—I've never heard this before. Obviously, we're going to point them to your book, but where else might you send them to start a journey to um, investigate these topics a little bit more deeply?
1: Well, which topic in particular? Uh, 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 the, the, no, mean, yeah,
0: this—the this, the, the viewpoint of who was right and wrong during this period of history was: were the Christians the one aggressing, were the Muslims the one aggressing?
1: Oh, okay, yeah. No, that's a good, well, uh, so one of the main reasons I wrote the first book and I, as the Sword and Scimitar was really to address this topic because there aren't many books that do this. Um, many, first of all, many books that will talk about conflict between you know, Europe and a Muslim world will not do it through a religious prism. They'll look at nationalities and they'll talk about the Ottomans versus Europe. And they'll talk about the Moors in Spain. Okay, they'll talk about the Tatar yoke of Russia. And the ideological component, that is to say the religious component, is often invisible or completely just lacking in these books. So you can't really connect the dots and understand, you know, what motivated this side against that side, what was happening here and so forth. So that was one of the reasons I really, uh, it's the only book I know of the kind that does this, to try to show you that what was happening in Spain under the Moors, what was happening with the Ottomans in the Balkans and the Seljuk Turks in the Holy Land and the Mongols or the Tatars in Russia was all interrelated in the long war, because the the invaders, the attackers, in this case, the Moors and the Berbers and the Ottomans and the Seljuks and the Mongols were quoting Islamic scriptures to justify their war, which I mentioned earlier, the jihad and the three options and so forth. Um, so I think that makes it very clear. But if you look at a lot of and and especially if you look at modern day academic books that focus on the crusade, you're going to get a completely It's going to be presented in a vacuum. You literally have academics and popular writers from John Esposito to Karen Armstrong, who literally say that four centuries of peace, and I'm actually paraphrasing John Esposito, four centuries of peace between Islam and the West um, passed before the Crusaders just out of the blue went and invaded the Middle East, which is, of course, nonsense, because in those four centuries, three quarters of the Christian world was conquered in the name of Islam. And as I was telling you right before the Crusades, there was you know violence. So um, I would honestly say, I mean, it sounds self-serving, but if you really want to educate yourself about those conflicts between Europe and Islam, and with 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 a, with a look at the ideological component behind it, I would recommend my book Sword and Scimitar and the new one, Defenders of the West. Like I said, the main difference is one focuses on battles, and this one focuses more on on leaders and men. Um, but yeah. If you want to look at books about Islamic doctrine and things like jihad and that, yeah, there's other sources you can consult. But if you want to look at the history, honestly, this is the only book that I know um, and precisely why I wrote it, because there was, I thought, a lack uh, in this particular, you know, in, in this topic of the middle military interaction between Islam and the West.
0: Okay, we will link to your website. To the book, anywhere else that you want to send people to, and do you have any upcoming projects for us to be on the lookout for?
1: No, yeah, if you link to my website, that's great um, because it also has my other books that deal with other topics that I touched on, such as you know how bad the persecution of Christians is in the, in the Islamic world, and the Al Qaeda reader, you know, which was a translation of Al Qaeda's own logic, which again fits into this uh, context that I'm discussing. You know, the three choices. excuse me uh so yeah my website is great also has my social media uh whoever wants to follow my you know i publish probably two three articles every week on these topics Um, but that's it and thank you
0: okay raymond thank you so much for your time and uh look forward to following your work in the future
1: okay great um can you send me a link when this is out
0: thanks for listening today really really appreciate it if you could drop a five-star review wherever you may be We keep getting on great guests, and that's because you keep supporting that show. If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com.